Okay, here we go. Uh, November the 4th, 2012, lecture discussion number 87 on the Book of Romans. And I have some internet letters to read, and I want to read them again to make sure they kind of get in the record. Uh, you've heard some of these before, um, but uh, just to make sure this time they get on the internet. I have one from, uh, let me find it. I have one from Robert, uh, I don't know, from Arizona. No, I'm not sure where Robert is from. See, he tells me, oh, in Palm Desert, California. He's asking uh, Kurt and Ben and um, Dave and all of them. He says, Cliffsiders, Cliffsiders, wherefore, part of November and from I. We, your humble, distant, but warm interneters, await the chronicles of Chronister Oktoberfest. May we soon be gifted with uplifting, uplifting downloads, behemoth blessings. Robert, four-eyed old man, Palm Desert, California. And he quotes Ecclesiastes 9.4, which you know is the living dog. It's better to be a living dog than a dead lion, or it's one of my favorites. So uh, Robert is a very, uh, uh, very, uh, how do I say, strong supporter of us, and we are honored to have him. And uh, Kurt and Dave and Ben, as you know, are beginning to consolidate all of this stuff. So, Robert, I do know that some of these are at cliffside.org under the library thing. Uh, at least that's how it works for me when I checked it uh, the one time I've been there in the last two months. So I know cliffside.org has that, Robert. And so also uh, uh, I have a, something from any international who has questions on um, Adam and Eve. And, and I would say to you, I don't know where you're from. I'm told, please help me understand Questions about Adam and Eve, and I'll cover those in a few. And asking about the fig leaves, um, and um, and so I have done that already, and that is at sermon audio. If you want to go ahead of me here, uh, and it says from any international, any branches, it, it uh, is how I get it. So I don't know your name, but uh, I will be covering Adam and Eve again, uh, a little bit differently. But that is at sermon audio. Dot com under Cliffside. And then I have a, a, a letter from uh, Glenn. Let me get this. Glenn, I'm so thankful to have found your sermons on Sermon Audio. And he has a, a question on entropy and time. And then, Glenn, uh, I, will, uh, I will get to that in a few weeks as well. That's uh, on my uh, list today, actually, to, um, to deal with that again. But I didn't make it today. And uh, one last one, uh, uh, David from Nebraska. David is also a marvelous supporter. And he was asking me, um, uh, do I have any, uh, do I have anybody that I read, any material that defends uh, the limited free will position that I have? And he would like to find a book. And, uh, and David, we very much appreciate uh, your support and all that you do. He writes uh, very thoughtful letters uh, quite often to me that I unfortunately never have time to respond to, so I wanted to do it here. And for David's sake and for anybody else listening, um, my position comes from uh, a number of people, but uh, I think you would find Law or Grace by M.R. DeHaan, David, uh, something that would help you understand Hebrews are the book of Hebrews by M.R. Dahan, where he covers um, that subject very, very well and um, takes away the uh, interpretation 
that the no free will or the hyper-Calvinist view of Hebrews, and as does Arnold G. Fruchtenbaum, uh, he has Arnold G. Fruchtenbaum has a monograph on the warnings of the book of Hebrews, where he also takes away that verse uh, that is uh, pretty much a cornerstone. Um, uh, of the hyper-Calvinist uh, position and Charles Ryrie's uh, basic uh, theology he puts them side by side uh, David for you uh, in chapter 54 those three I think would be of, of great value to you as at least a good place to start and then you have to uh, end up uh, um, quantum <laughs> physics as you know to get uh, to get what I believe is the uh, is where you want to be. Now, you want to tell them where you find your sermons on the website? Oh, um, yes, and once again, uh, sermon uh, audio has Cliffside sermons, and uh, cliffside.org has Cliffside sermons, as does uh, iTunes or iPod or whatever that is. Podbean. Podbean has that. In libraries. And, and yes, I did. I hope I said that, uh, that cliffside.org. I found it in the library. Uh, Terry was not listening when I said that, so he <laughs> did. Now, I get this magazine. I don't want to identify it for folks, but this is the one I get. I get lots of these. And uh, this came up. Somebody was very, very concerned. Uh, let me see if I can find it. I didn't mark it down very well. Now I'm going to struggle finding it, aren't I? It's in the uh, letters to the editor section. Oh, my God. I hope I didn't bring the the wrong one. Um, I might have, but anyway, let me just wing it here without reading it exactly. If it's not this one, it's one that I left at home. I, I got, I get them constantly. Well, in the letters to the editor section, there was a question about why was Christ baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist, and the answer that that particular magazine gave them is because Christ had sinned. And he had to be baptized because in order to get the sin removed, um, and that's, that is a prominent magazine. And I'm just going, wow. The mistake that they make all the time, they could not come up with a reason. They know baptism is a repentance for sin, and so Christ was baptized, he must have sin. And then they try to separate it. Well, his flesh and blood, he, his blood was sinful. And his flesh was sinful. Well, now they've fouled uh, the sacrifice, communion. they fouled everything up. Now they've got a big mess. But that's what they do. And why do they do that? Why do they end up making that conclusion? And they put it in their magazine. There's millions of people read that magazine. Why? What, what's the reason? And the reason is, is because they have a Christless, if you will, an absence of Christ interpretation. Had they just read the Old Testament and found the floating accent... In 2 Kings 6, right? Had they found Naaman's uh, being dunked in the Jordan River again, uh, Elisha? Had they found where the Ark of the Covenant is the first into, in Joshua, the first into the river of Jordan? Had they found just those three, they would know that Christ is baptized in the exact same spot as those three things. So he's fulfilling the prophecy of the Old Testament. If you find the New Testament and you don't find the Old Testament compliment, you will end up in trouble. I say it over and over and over again. I'll say it again today. Here's a major magazine, fantastic theologians on many, many issues. Once again, it proves, doesn't it, that nobody has it all figured out. 
But one thing you don't do is come up with some conclusion that Christ has sin in him when it's so easily explained by the floating accent, the ark going first into the Jordan River and the, uh, and the leprosy of Naaman. Okay? If that doesn't make any sense to you, um, if you're listening by internet, um, you'll find those sermons as well on all those other places that I say. Okay, we were last really, and I'm getting a slow start here, we were last very deeply immersed in the tall grass that's Romans 5.12, attempting to reconcile and understand all that is contained in Romans 5.12. It's just one verse, let me read it again. I kind of add a little bit to it to make it fit a little easier. Um, So I'll explain where I do that. Therefore, through one man, sin entered. Then death through sin came. And I added the then and the came. As it says, therefore through one man sin entered, death through sin. But I'm, I'm not, the Bible doesn't need my help. But I just wanted you to know that there's an order to it. So I read it this way very often. Uh, I start out teaching high school. Therefore through one man sin, and I taught junior high, so you can see where I ended up with Therefore, through one man sin entered, then death came through sin. Thus, death spread, death spread to all men because all sin. Okay? That's Romans 5.12. And we barely began that, haven't made it past the through one man. I was going to put it on the board, but I, I, I took up too much time to do that now. Uh, but we, we haven't gotten through, gotten past through one man, much less that sin entered and death through sin. Because why did sin enter? Why does death come through sin? I ask that a lot. You've got to be able to answer that. Why is death the, the punishment for sin, if you will? Punishment is really not accurate. Say consequence or result. Why death? Why physical death? I, I say all the time, why not, uh, why not a time out? I have said that. I have, you have to laugh louder. There are thousands of people listening to you. <laughs> but but I, I've said, why not annihilation? Haven't I? We covered that. And I hope you know why not annihilation. But we've barely begun that, and, and we have to get to all of that here as we go along. And much, much less, I, we haven't even begun the Adam typology. That'll be a little bit this week, and, uh, and not so much, though. And the hands and the side of Christ, and the hands and the side of Adam, and the federal headship of Adam, and the federal headship of, of Christ, and the not deceived of Adam, and the physical death, and the spiritual death, and the spreading of sin and death, and the fear of God, um, that, and how that... And how we have the fear of God versus the fear of death or the terror of death that's universal. And, and this fear and wisdom that is side by side in, in Proverbs and many other places in the Bible. And fear and unbelief and death for our sake and the curse for our sake. I'll put that on, I'll put that on the death and the curse in context of Genesis 3. Or for our sake. Okay, it really says for your sake, talking to Adam, but you can you can make that understandable. How is it the death, physical death? Anybody here looking forward to it? Some people think they are. But the curse of the ground and death, dust, is for our sake. And then uh, adding to that, and I should put a big list here, but I'll do it next week. Mourning for sin. Why is it that he said, blessed are those who mourn for their own sin? Um, And memory, 
I asked this question a few weeks ago. Hopefully you have begun to wrestle with it. Your memory, how much of your memory do you have post-resurrection? If you've lost a lot of your memory, how much of your memory is sin, I ask? How much of your memory is memory of sin? So here's a great question. How much of your memory is resurrected and reestablished? And is, it, is your memory of sin, by the way? Is, let me re- do it really carefully. Is memory of sin, sin? If I remember sin, am I sinning? That's a very important question. Guilt, remorse, and humility all come into this. That, by the way, is Adam. Adam is the first one in the Bible who had guilt. He is the first one in the Bible. Uh, you can make the case for Eve, but I will make the case for Adam. Adam had guilt, remorse, and humility. Self-identity, free will, immortality has to be discussed in Romans 5.12. Peace, having peace with God. Uh, physical reminders. By the way, Christ had physical reminders, didn't he? Of his physical life. When he was post-resurrected, he came to them. And we have to put your hand here, put your finger here, put your hand here. Right? Physical reminders of his crucifixion. Did uh, Christ have mental reminders? Did Christ remember his crucifixion? Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, you have physical reminders post-resurrection of who you are today. Some of you are hoping that you won't. And I agree with you. I, I, I can see why you would want that. I, I really can't. I have the same thing. I'm getting age spots now. By the thousands. It's not, it's not pleasant. I've decided that uh, there's a real business opportunity in making years for older people. Right. They have computer technology. You can see Photoshop photoshopped uh, pictures in the periodicals, right? Why not a photoshopped mirror? That's what I'm thinking. And by the way, they thought of that at the clothing stores. They intentionally adjust those mirrors so that you will look what? Yeah, that's right. You will not look as big boned as you are. You will not. And you will buy their clothes. And you'll get home and go, wow, it doesn't look the same here. It's because it's a trick. And you fell for it, you sucker fish, you. But uh, physical reminders and mental reminders, again, back to memory of sin. Is it sin? Is it sin to remember your sin? Because who you are is in your memory, right? How much of your memory, uh, and my memory is, I, I have lost a lot of memory and I am still me. So how does all that work? That's a post-resurrection issue. And that, by the way, is part of uh, 5.12 because we have Lazarus's two deaths and we have, the, again, judgment uh, and containment versus extinction and annihilation. That is the lake of fire. Why does he contain instead of annihilate? And we've covered that before and we'll continue with it to make sure everyone understands it. And that barely sums up our task in Romans 5.12 and obviously it is just a small beginning. We're in for a long, long walk to get past Romans 5.12 as per usual. Now, as you're aware, I get, a, I get quite a few of uh, things come across my desk. Uh, people write or call, um, and I'm very busy right now. I'm sorry to say to everybody, I'm buried with uh, my mom's estate, and it's going to be a while before I can come up for air, and so I'm not as available until that occurs. It could take me six months, it could take longer. Uh, 
for me to get through all of that. And it's very important that I do because of its impact on me. But uh, anyway, some of the people that write or call me are not very happy with me. And they typically ask me to answer questions that uh, they are certain, they're absolutely certain that their questions have not and cannot be answered. And they don't ask them of me in order to get an answer. They ask them of me to prove to me that they have questions that I cannot answer and that nobody can answer. That's a syndrome or a condition that happens, and it's a constant, by the way, and I had it once because mostly the people that do that are what? Young men. Young men, have a con- uh, having been one, uh, they have a condition, uh, and it's inescapable. All young men think the same way. That's why they put them in the military at 18, because it's advantageous to the military, and it's not advantageous very often. Now, the military knows how to deal with this kind of thing. But anyway, uh, these are young men who write me, and they believe earnestly that they are the first to ever think of things that no one else has ever considered, irrespective of the thousands of years and billions of people that have been before them. They are sure that they are the ones who have thought of this one thing, or these two things, or these three things, and therefore uh, uh, they're unique. And they assert that they have, all in their letters that they send, they have destroyed the Bible, and they have proved evolutionary monism, which they desperately want to be true. They want evolutionary monism to be true. Ask why. Why? Why do they want Anyway, it just so happens that Annabelle sent me two such examples that bear mentioning that they are the most common by a wide, wide margin, and you almost certainly have heard them. The questions are always identical, and the exact same premises are repeated as if they've never been seen, never been heard, never been refuted, that they are absolute fact. It is how it goes, and it's okay. It continues to happen, and it is what, it's, it's good that it does happen, frankly. I call it the, um, the first time in the room syndrome after my father. He used to say that to me. You just got here. You think this room just started when you got here. But I've been in the room for 90 years. I know I went around the room just like you're going around the room. You're going to find the same things I find. In fact, he was the first one to tell me, you're going to see my phone number on the wall. And I've been using that for many, many years. I tell people, when you, when you go into the ditch and you roll down the ditch, you get to the cliff and you roll down the cliff and you're all beat up at the bottom on the rocks, You'll see a phone. If you go into the phone booth, you'll see my number. Call Steve. He'll tell you how you got there and how to get out. How will he know this? He's been there. And he knows what way not to try next. But you won't listen. But he wants you to call him, Steve does, so that you won't listen. And you'll have a record of not listening. Just like he Okay? Anyway, it's the first time in the room syndrome. This is the first time they've ever thought these things, and no one in their, their age, uh, no one their age or in their social environment can defeat their position, so they conclude without the slightest hesitation that they are invulnerable. And they are bulletproof super genius boy. Our young man, whatever the equivalent sub 30 year old man is. And they have uh, no self-doubt. That's the one thing when I read the letter. That, wow, not even a stuff, a wisp of a doubt. And they also have no humility. Be 
because that they go side by side. No. If I have no self-doubt, I will not have any humility. Now, I don't want to be too harsh on the young. <laughs> that is the truth. That's a fake I admit I don't want. Uh, but uh, what's sad is these young men do slaughter the weak because the weak congregate together. That's one that we call it in our public schools. Uh, they, they do slaughter the weak, and, and that's, that, that's, there's three shames that that is. Three things. That's a shame three times. It's a shame that they desire to slaughter the weak. They want you to have no faith. You see it on TV all the time, too. Uh, there's always a character that's supposed to be the smartest one in, in the series or whatever television show running around saying that evolutionary monism is true and there is no uh, life after death, there is no judgment, there's only hopelessness and cessation of existence. And they want to slaughter the weak and to cause them to stumble and to lose their faith. We also call those people university professors, right? So it's a shame that they desire to do that. Why do they want to do that? You've got to ask why. And it's a shame that there are so many targets for these kinds of people to massacre. The church today is a target-rich environment. It's easy to blow people up in the church today and get them confused and hurt them because they're not strong. They have no root system. It is, we have a church of flowers and no roots. So when the slightest little wind comes, they're blown away. A little bit of heat comes, they will. That's too bad. And in the third shame, it's a shame that these people that do this have yet to come across anyone who would uh, shake or end their misplaced confidence. Because frankly, just a, a minimal amount of effort is required for that. Read Edgar Andrews. Read C.S. Lewis. Read George Berkeley. Just please read one, uh, read one position paper of theirs. Just to give you three examples. And then maybe you won't be so fast to uh, run book face and share your wisdom or lack thereof. That's where you find it. It's all over the place. The young love to uh, do that on book face. Anyway, the complaints they raise, and these are the ones that Annabelle gave me, uh, they're always beautiful. First they say to you, evolution is a proven fact. I won't write it on the board because I've got to hurry now. Evolution is a proven fact, they say. Uh, therefore, God is an imaginary friend. God is imaginary, and if you talk to him, it's like having an imaginary rabbit. You see, uh, oh, I can't think of his name. Jimmy Stewart. Yeah, I did. And think. And think. Or he would get to Jimmy Stewart. But anyway, they say that God is imaginary and evolution is a proven fact, and, and you are delusional. They will tell you, or, or talking to, praying to someone that doesn't exist. And the second thing they do is it, they immediately go to number two, which is a, a real problem uh, logically, but none, they never seem to think so. The God of the Bible, they will tell you, is hateful, vicious, petulant, capricious, and the Bible is filled with hate. And the Bible being filled with hate is proof that God is likewise filled with hate. That's what they do. One and two. Now, I find it ironic that something evolutionary monism I find it ironic that evolutionary monism is something that is supposed to be proven cannot be observed by anybody has never been observed by anybody and it cannot be duplicated and has never been duplicated and it cannot be tested and it has never been tested and the belief uh, in it 
Belief, by its very definition, is a non-physical process. And I see great irony. A physical process, I mean. So a physical process, which must then be accepted without any testing mechanism at all, or verification at all. It's got to be accepted. It has to be believed, which is a non-physical process. It must ultimately be declared as truth by those who use their belief to do so. And belief, as you know, is a mental property. It is a supernatural, non-physical property. And it cannot be explained by a physical process. So I find it interesting that the only way I can believe a physical process, evolution, is true, is to do something that is not physical, whose origin can't be, uh, can't be explained by a physical process. But they never, never find that as a problem. They will insist the fossil record be interpreted to conform to their belief or their faith in evolution. And if you interpret it any other way, that is unacceptable. It cannot be interpreted any other way. You know what we call that? If I look at evidence and you look at evidence and you interpret it one way and you preclude my interpretation, my interpretation is not allowed. This name is called fascism. The evidence of the fossil record is hydraulic, rapid burial of completely formed distinct species. Billions and billions of them. We have evidences of billions and billions of them in great heaps. They're in great boneyards. It's called punctuated equilibria, by the way. They, they come instantly. There is no transitional uh, record of anything. Just ask yourself, how many transitional uh, fossils would I have to have to get from a cow to a whale? I have to have hundreds and thousands of them to reach the moon. But anyway, the fossil record is anything, but it is not evidence of an evolutionary transition species. And I don't want to rehash it, other than we've always gone through evolutionary monistic philosophy, we've done it enough, physicalism, reductionism, cessation of existence, etc. So I want to fit with, I want to go one to the one that fits with uh, Romans 5.12, uh, which is why I bring it up. The Bible is hate-filled, therefore God is hate-filled. Now, by the way, if, if, if I say God, the Bible is hate-filled, and therefore God is hate-filled, immediately, it never occurs to them, when they tell me that, that I might have the opposite opinion. Mm-hmm. That there might even be an opposite opinion. They, they preclude it. There is no opposite opinion. There is only their opinion. Back to fascism we go. So what is the opposite of, uh, opinion of hate-filled? Love-filled. If it is not hate-filled, what will I say it is? That's their position. And so over here is my position. What is it? It is, the Bible is love-filled. Of course, they immediately mock. See, the converse of hate filled is love filled. This is how Romans 5.12 comes to the fore. That through one man, sin and death and death spread. We would think of that and immediately say, what? God's mean. If we're idiots. Sorry. Remember, death and curse is for our sake. Through one man, death entered and death spread. 
That's God doing something that he has to do. Why does he have to do it? Because he's hate-filled? No. Love. Now, usually the typical approach for thousands of years now, but brand new for the just came into the room guys, is for them to repeat this litany uh, of verses in Scripture where they believe, and there's that word again, believe, a non-physical process, where they believe uh, with great assuredness um, that they have discovered within Scripture that God is evil, proving their hate-filled premise. And the list of passages is triumphantly presented each and every time. They throw the gauntlet down with zest and they jump up and down. And the Christians scatter like a school of herring. And that, uh, uh, when it's like a shark or fishing drama comes through. Christians boom. And, uh, and that last part is, is very often true. Again, it is the state, the current state of the contemporary church. When you have a feeling-based church, you are producing boneless chickens slaughtered. No offense. Sorry. No, I really mean to offend you. You're doing a feeling-based church out there. I hope you're listening. Your church is junk. And you are setting up these kids to be slaughtered. I know. I deal with it. They call me. They send me this. They send me your Facebook posting. Sorry, book face. They send me your... I won't give them credit. They send me your book face stuff because they can't handle it. That's very, very sad. Makes me mad. I don't like people slaughtering the weak, but I also don't like the church producing the weak and enabling the weak and wanting the weak to do what? Be weak. Why? They're weak. I get no money. Been that not that for a long time. Anyway, the list is always the same, and I yearn and beg and I plead and I pine for something original, and then I remember Solomon, Ecclesiastes one nine. There is nothing new. Nothing. It's all, don't think you've got something new. If you've got something new, you just haven't done any research. Okay. Now this list contains passages and verses that they believe or infer or say clearly that the Creator God of Israel, the Creator God of all, intends to bring physical death or orders physical death or causes physical death on individuals or groups or nations that are wholly undeserving of physical death. And are in fact innocent. So God, hateful God, is bringing physical death to the innocent. That's what they'll say. They have found it in the Bible. They usually give me the Canaanites. Sometimes the Midianites. They always have some. Sometimes a uh, it, it's hard to even uh, it's hard to even uh, begin to, to tackle, but they always say whatever group it is, they're innocent, and God killed them. How could God kill these poor innocent people? In fact, He, he kills everybody with a virgin for the Midianites. Oh, why did He kill all those innocent women, wholly undeserving of death, physical death? He's therefore a bill, and I say to them, no. He's love-filled. That can't be. He's killing people. Killing, physical death, is inconsistent, they say, with love. If you loved me, you would let me do what? Remain in sin forever. That's what they think. You can begin to see the problem that they have. Anyway, you're way ahead of me now. Let's pretend that somebody's listening that thinks I'm a ranking idiot. Trust me, they're that. 
But they conclude, and the first time in the rumors, they conclude with boldness that the God of the Bible is a God of hate because he is killing the undeserving of physical death or the innocent of uh, either one. And I respond with two lines of counter-reasoning. I always say the same thing. Uh, I won't write it up. I'm going to run out of time. I say Christology and Israelology. That's what I say back. Christology and Israelology. Free will consequence implication <coughs> and the preservation of salvation. Salvation being uh, Christ's name, Yeshua, right? We say Jesus, it's really Yeshua or Yeshua, and it means salvation. Uh, so that's what I answer back. Christology and Israelology and free will consequence or implication and the preservation of salvation. And they look at me again like I'm crazy. You know, let me put it this way. Is it evil for him to preserve salvation? Or is it love? It's obvious that it's love, but not to that. So let's go on. And that's how all this fits with our discussion of Adam and Romans 5.12. The love-filled. You see, you have to, you have to say he's not hate-filled, but I see this, I see this intervention. So how, why is he intervening? What's his purpose of intervening? Why are the Midianite women that are not virgins, why were they killed? Why didn't he just let them go on doing what they were doing? What was it that they were doing? How could they be doing something? They're innocent. They're only undeserving of physical death. Why doesn't he let everybody live forever? Why do we even have physical death? Because it is what? Repeat after me. For our sake. How is it for our sake? Once again, back to how I started with the... uh, Jesus being baptized thing. Once again, it is impossible, it is impossible to understand the Old Testament apart from its Christology. If you take Christ out, I'm, I'm dying from time, Dave, so I'm going to hustle. If you take Christ out, uh, you will never figure anything out. Any attempt to understand the Old Testament apart from how it is a portrait or a prophecy of Christ is doomed. How often do I say it? Thousands and thousands of times I've said it. And I, it, it just, however, is the predominant problem. Every time you run into one of these things, always ask yourself, where's Jesus Christ in the story? Whether or not it's the Midianites, the Amorites, the Hittites, uh, the Canaanites, whoever it is that God interferes with. Whether it's the Tower of Babel, whether it's Sodom and Gomorrah. Do not say hate-filled, say love-filled and start asking why. Who is he protecting? What is he protecting? By the way, who is he protecting when he blows up Sodom and Gomorrah? Who did he protect? Raise your hand. He protected you. Yeah. Every time he saved Israel, who got protected? Us. Salvation is through the Jews, right? Jesus Christ is on every page of the Old Testament. If you or anyone excludes him, you will have a useless, futile, worthless interpretation. Okay, for example, are there any innocent human beings? That's Romans 5.12. All have sinned. Some are not held accountable, but all have sinned. Who are the ones that are not held accountable? Children, that's right. Therefore, or so, if you will, all have sinned. All are subject to physical death. And now we know that Jesus Christ is the solution to death and to sin. 
and he's the only solution. And his blood alone is both cleansing and his life-giving blood. And as a result, he gives us eternal resurrected life to whosoever calls upon him. And he substitutes himself in the place of those who seek his salvation. And he is the only substitute. There is no other substitute that is able to do so. And he is the only sinless one. He is God himself in the flesh. Now, how does the world respond to all those truths I just gave you about Christ? How do they respond to it? Because what kind of truth is it? It is a love-filled truth. He has given us a love-filled truth that he will save us from our what? Free will decisions to sin, which cause what? Consequences of which are death for our sake. By the way, how does the world respond to the truth of Jesus Christ and his love-filled plan of salvation? They hate it. Some are saved, but most, the overwhelming, overwhelming majority hate the truth of Jesus Christ. Visceral, virulent, bitter, frothing, violent hate. Ask, by the way, why? Why is this so? Keep asking all the time, why? And throughout history, those that hate the Creator God, who is Jesus Christ and His plan and means of salvation, have been relentless in one thing. What are they relentless in doing? They're relentless in killing his prophets and his followers. What were the Midianite women doing? They were killing the Jews. How were they killing the Jews? So you would think. You've got to realize there's two kinds of death, right? Spiritual death and physical death. What kind of death were they bringing? Spiritual, spiritual death. Why were they doing it? Because they hated the truth one true God of Israel is plan How about the Ammonites? What were they doing? Killing the Jews. How about the Canaanites? What were they doing? Killing, Killing everybody. Including themselves. Why do people try to stamp out the followers of Christ? And should God let them? I'm getting ahead of this. Let's just talk about recently, right? Throughout history, the ones that hate the truth of Jesus Christ. Let's go back to the book face guys, the first day in the room guys. Why are they on book face telling everybody there is no Christ, there is no God, it's all imaginary, there is no plan of salvation, there is no hope, all there is is what? Nothing. Why do they want to do that? Why do they attack why not just sit in your room and believe and keep your mouth shut? But you can't. You've got to go on book face. Ask why. What's motivating? What are they trying to accomplish? Relentlessly, those who hate Jesus Christ hate the God of the Bible, which is Jesus Christ, and His means, His only way of salvation. They have been relentless in their killing of His prophets and followers for thousands of years. Again, ask, why do we want to do this? In my lifetime, not quite, almost, I know of Stalin, Hitler, and Mao, the name of the most recent. These men hated the Jews and hated Christians and slaughtered them by the hundreds and hundreds of millions. Okay? But now we have radical Islam. It's the next to rise up to attempt to exterminate the Jews and the Christians. Uh, but the Antichrist is soon returning. Notice how I say that. He's coming back. The second coming of the Antichrist. He is the professional. 
He's the one who really kills the followers of Christ. Okay? And being that it is true that there is only one way to salvation through the person of Jesus Christ, and it is impossible to kill him, he's got to give his life for us. And what remains for those to do if they desire it to extinguish all the witness of Christ? What remains for them? Well, the only thing they can do is silence the messengers of Christ do so if it were possible and it isn't possible. Why isn't it possible? Why isn't it possible to kill every single Christian? The Antichrist doesn't try to do that. First he tries to kill every single Jew. He's unable to do that. But he goes in. How come he's unable to kill the Jews? Why is it that he couldn't kill the Jews? He's got 144,000. He can't kill anyone. How, how is it that he can't kill the Jews? He's a pretty powerful guy. They're protected. Who protects them? God protects them. Why does God protect Because there's... Why doesn't God just say, God, I'm going to kill them all. I'll, I'll be here. Let me know what you've done. If it were possible to kill the messengers of Christ, and it isn't, if it were possible to grant the hypothetical, that would result in the cutting off of what? The ending of what? Salvation. Certainly the limiting. But God will not allow that to happen. He does not allow it to happen. He intervenes every time. He defends himself and his truth. He will not, and his followers, he will not permit his offer, his gift of love and mercy to be eradicated or erased. He won't do that. And therefore, the question that comes next is the most obvious of the obvious questions. Is it evil for God? Is it hateful for God to protect and ensure His one only way of saving mankind? Is that hateful? Because they say it is. Every time He does it, they call it what? Hate. And every time He does it, it's what? Love. Approved. Be certain that there are a vast number who wish for all to perish. That's the motive. They want everyone to perish, including themselves. And there's a vast number of them. And God does what? What's he saying? He wishes that none perish. He is devoted to saving. So how should he have responded in the Old Testament, where it's recorded in the Old Testament? that those who attack his nation of Israel in an overt effort to destroy them and their witness. At a time, by the way, when Israel is what? They are the only people, the only nation on the earth at the time that these, these enemies are trying to kill every one of them. They're the only people who possess the knowledge of the true God. Therefore, they're the only people that know the, uh, the true salvation. Excuse me. And they, by the way, were charged with the one singular task of going to the whole world to teach all of mankind so that all of mankind could be saved. They were supposed to be a nation of priests that loved the whole world, especially the whole world, especially the Gentile, the non-Jews. And they were supposed to disperse themselves throughout the whole world to teach of God and preach of salvation. And they didn't do it. So he dispersed them anyway. And there's your application of election. If I'm right about the election, and I won't say you have to come to church to find out what I say about things like that. If I'm right, you and I and all of us are in a position where we either disperse ourselves or we get dispersed. 
I would recommend that you take option A. In other words, you go and witness or he will make you a witness. Why will he make you a witness? For your sake. And who else's sake? Everyone that has come in contact with you. Because what, what does he want for us? That none perish. All are saved. Okay. Should have God refused to act on their behalf when the Amidianites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Canaanites, pick your eyes, should he have just refused to safeguard his chosen people, or for that matter, his church, should he have just, as I said, walked off and said, okay, kill them if you can, hope a couple of them live, I'll be back in 45 minutes. Is that what you want him to do? Would that be love for him to do that? I submit that failure to keep Israel, to teach Israel, to purify Israel, would in fact be the very hateful that the atheists accuse God of. They accuse him of hate. Had he does, if he does not intervene, if he does not stop Israel from perverting itself, polluting itself, destroying itself, if he lets them do it, that's hate. Because what is it? What happens then? Salvation is truncated and he will not allow his truths to be perverted or truncated. That would be evil. His truths will continue to be a, a, a destroyed Israel morally, a destroyed church morally is worthless. He won't let that happen. Why not? Because he loves. He wants people to be saved. So God acts, acts to secure and assure his doctrines of Jesus Christ. His typology, his symbols, his prophecies, so that they remain lighted, so that men are saved, and the remnant is always protected. This is what the Bible is. To let the light be smothered or doused, that would be hateful, that would be evil, and he cannot be hateful or evil, thus he intervenes, because he loves and pursues the unsaved. Loves him. Very simple, brilliant. How come this works? This book face up. How come they come running to me and say, please answer this again? I don't know what to do. I don't know. Makes me sad. Now, you have to know that the limited free will of man is going to be involved in any of these kinds of discussions. God insists that man is accountable and will be judged for his decisions. Is that hate or love? That's love. Yeah. Good answer. So you have to know why. If he does not hold free will accountable and he does not judge sin, what happens? What is he if he doesn't do either one of those? So to proclaim that God... So that those that proclaim God to be evil for ending threats to his own plan of salvation would rather what? None. They would rather that none be saved. You see that? They're trying to stop salvation. So they call God hateful for, for stopping them from stopping salvation. That's not hateful. It's love them. It's as simple as that. They begin from the position that there is no God, 
And then, and then, so there is no free will or purpose, just random events and cessation of existence. And then, inexplicably, they attack the one true God for preserving the one true salvation and eternal life. See, it makes no sense. It's all in an attempt to keep as many as they can from being saved or thinking they're saved or wanting to be saved. Because why? Why do they do it? Why do they post on book faith? As they're filled with something. The very this is classic projection. They're filled with hate. Hate. Of course they are. They want none to be saved. What is that? Hate. Do everything they can to keep as many as they can from being saved. The thought of their creator judging them for their actions and choices just makes them so angry and so hate-filled that they try to make everyone perish. And they end up running around in circles logically. You should train yourself to quickly recognize the none-be-saved pattern that rises up. It's one of the five old lies of Satan. Somewhere on the internet. Ask Supper Day where it is. Uh, but you've got to notice the none be saved pattern. It accuses God, it accuses Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. Jesus Christ, God, Lord, O oh God Almighty. It accuses Jesus Christ of being hateful and evil for stopping or ending the schemes of man that oppose the salvation that God has given, provided for to the very ones who wish that none. Say what's interesting about this is that he, to the ones that want no one to be saved, he's trying to save those. Think of the Apostle Paul, who was going around killing everyone that knew the truth about Christ. And what did God do? Because he what? Love filled. He saves the one that's killing. It's an extraordinary thing. The Bible is filled with his love. Again, back we go to the fundamental questions. Is it good for God to end and judge sin and evil? Yes, it is good. He has to do it in the sense that it is good that he does it. Sin must end, evil must end. Is it good for God to give mercy and salvation? Yes, that's good. I hope you would see that's love. Both are love. If he allows sin and evil to continue, it becomes more sin, more evil. He has to stop it. Because he has the power to stop it. And he will stop it. And it's good that he gives mercy and salvation. I'm happy about that, personally. You should be happy. Is it good for God to frustrate, counterattack, defeat, neutralize, obstruct, physically kill? Pick whatever word you prefer. Is it good that God acts to guarantee the preservation of his salvation and his sake? Yes. Everywhere you find that in the Bible. That is God acting so that you can live, your children can live. It is love filled. And what would be said of the character of God if He did nothing? Okay, now start applying this principle to the fall of Adam and Eve, the decisions uh, of Adam. Adam is confronted with the death of Eve. He intervenes. Adam counters the deception of Satan with his intervention. Why? What, by the way, does this say about Adam's character? Why didn't he just back up and let Eve go? Yeah, he loved her. See the kind of, See how I'm making the connection between Adam and God? Adam's character was such, he's not deceived, and he intervenes. He has a prevent defense, if you will. He's going to stall. 
Adam had a plan. He had thought of it. I am confident by the way that he even told Eve about it. What I'm going to do. If either one of us is deceived by Satan, by that he meant when you're deceived by Satan, try that on your anniversary. (laughs) But I believe that he had this plan, and he told her about it, that she knew what to do once she was deceived. She went right to him, and he had the plan ready. That the plan had a flaw in it. I think that he might have even thought that through and knew it was a deliberate act of sin. I'll make that case, because Adam is an extraordinary man. He did not walk away. He, in fact, intervened when she fell. Adam has a series of decisions to make, and so does Eve. She has to do something that she hasn't done yet in this story. She has to submit uh, her decisions uh, to Adam's decisions. She has to choose to follow Adam or not follow Adam. Okay? That's her choices that are coming. She's already made a series of free will decisions to this point. She has more to make. It's not a given that she will follow Adam. She clearly has been, been predisposed to do otherwise up to this point. Remember, it's through one man that sin entered and death spread. Not through Eve, through one man. That tells you, by the way, uh, what Eve did and what Adam did. Now, this is the beginning. The first time sin enters a human being, this is the beginning of that. Eve, actually she's the woman, she's called the woman. But at this place on the timeline, death has not spread. It's just in Eve, it's limited to the woman. She can't die alone and will die alone if Adam forsakes her and lets her and does not intervene. If he walks away, says, See, too bad for you. You knew what I wanted to say, and she did. Because she will surely die, right? Says. And that's one of Adam's options, as you know. And I will make the case next week that Adam has not been caught by surprise. He knows the character of God and he knows the lies of Satan and he is not deceived and he is prepared. He has an emergency contingency and he implements it. The woman, by the way, will be the mother of all the living if she chooses to go with Adam's decision. She will choose to follow the plan. She does. Why, by the way? What does that say about her, about the character of, of Adam and the character of her? She knows something about Adam. She knows what about him? That his plan is a good one. How does she know that? Because she's smart. Because the plan does what? Benefits her. Who, who takes the cost? Adam does. He's the through one man. He takes. He sacrifices in a sense, doesn't he? That's still a sinful decision. We'll get to why it is next week. But what does it say about the character of Eve? What does it say about what Adam did? It is a love-filled decision by Adam. It is not stupidity, by the way, which you'll read all the time. Constantly, in some way, in commentaries. And just have to figure it out. Adam knows the character. He follows the character of God. He has some of the characteristics of God in the sense that he is a good person. And Eve chooses to follow him because she knows that Adam is a servant leader who will sacrifice himself. And Adam is going to be the through one man. And the curse is the ground for your sake. Now how strange. Genesis 3.17 is never noticed by the young men who come into the room. Physical death is a love filled for your sake. 
sweat, toil, thorns, thistles, until we return to the dust, until the body dies. Genesis 3.19. Notice that until. For some reason, everyone seems to miss 3.17 and 3.19. They miss the meanings and vast implications of for your sake and until we return to the dust. Next week, we'll focus on for your sake and until. Amazing, incredible story that is Adam and Eve and Satan. So let's rise and